All right. Well, good evening. We're excited to jump into one of my favorite psalms in the book, Psalm 73. And if you look at your sheet, you will notice it is a longer psalm. I had to cram the words onto a one sheet of paper, and uh, we'll see if we can make it through the psalm tonight. Um, that's my mission. Uh, if there's some sections in there that I kind of summarize, um, that's why. So, um, but looking forward to digging through this together. I want to start actually just by asking a question for you to a- answer for yourself. What are the thoughts and the doubts that you just can't get rid of, but at the same time you don't feel like you can voice them out loud? What experiences seem to conflict with what you know to be true about God, even to the point where you start doubting what you know to be true about God? Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms, gives voice to those exact thoughts. That's why I love the book of Psalms. That's why I love scripture. It's because it, it does not pretend, it does not paint a picture of humanity or Christianity void of those realities. It's not paint a picture, a pretty picture of Christianity free of doubts, free of conflict between head knowledge and experience. It breaks through the nice facade that we've created for ourselves, and it reveals the inner conflict that we experience privately. In fact, I've heard it said many times um, by those who were in church and are no longer in church that I just never felt like I could voice my doubts to others. Have you heard that before? I have. And perhaps they say, when I did, they were met with either bewilderment or judgment. If that is indeed the case, then the church is missing something. Because the Bible actually includes in its text the record of people who struggle with those exact same doubts, where they can't feel like they can voice them out loud, but they can't figure them out in their own head doesn't hide the fact that we as humans frequently question and doubt what we know to be true. The Bible acknowledges the tension between that head knowledge and that heart experience, and that's what Psalm 73 is all about. So I'm looking forward to reading through this together with you. We'll pray, we'll read it, and then hear your observations or thoughts initially before we jump in. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we look into the psalm, that your truth would enlighten our hearts, and that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would come to love you more and and understand you more and even understand our own doubts more. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 73, verse 1. This is a psalm of Asaph, so not a psalm by David. Asaph wrote a few psalms. He actually wrote some some Proverbs as well. I like Asaph because when you read his stuff, he actually is very brutally honest. Um, He's very unvarnished. And we'll say that even again in Psalm 73. Verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I, understand, I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What did you notice? What are your initial thoughts reading through that psalm? I want to share. Yeah, exactly. Bob says he feels the same way that I feel a lot of times. And again, that's why this is one of my favorites. Because I identify with it, right? Anything else? Yeah. years, doesn't it? Humanity, same old humanity. Anything else you noticed? Yeah. I think it's unusual. He acts almost jealous of the unrighteous. He does. Because they have a liberty to just do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Or that's the way he perceives it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what I say. He sounds very blunt and he's very honest. And he says very clearly, I'm jealous of the wicked. Because they seem to have it pretty good. Right? Yes. Yes, there's a dramatic shift in this psalm, isn't there? Where's the hinge? Have you noticed the very the, the hinge point, Elsie? Uh, the jealous, you know, all these thoughts are swirling in his head, and it says, until he went into the sanctuary of God, and then he had that renewed perspective, and we'll dig more into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Anything else? 
Let's jump back up to verse 1. I want you to notice how verse 1 and verse 2 start. Because the first words of these two verses encapsulate what we experience so often. What does verse 1 start with? Surely or truly. Verse 2, but as for me. So what's he saying in verse 1? What, uh, what's he talking about in verse 1? He's, he's saying, this is what I know to be true. God is good. God is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart, right? That's what he learned in Sunday school. That's what he read in his Bible. God is good all the time. So he's rehearsing, he's reciting what he knows to be true. But what's the problem? It doesn't look like it. As for me, my feet had almost slipped, stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he knows the textbook answer. And he's trying to hold on to his faith, but he feels like he's on unstable footing. And what is it that is causing him to slip? All right, so he's envious. Why is, he, why is he on unstable ground? He's envious. Now, is he envious of the, of the wicked's lifestyle? Like, does he want to live like a wicked person? Does he want to do wicked things? Is that why he's envious? <coughs> their prosperity. I'm envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. So he knows that God is good. He's good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. And I want you to remember that head knowledge, that Sunday school answer, because it's going to come into play later on in the psalm. But he says, the problem is, my own personal experience, I, I, I'm on unstable ground because I'm envious of how well the wicked are doing, and I'm not doing well. I'm trying to be pure in heart. And it's not going great. And I know God is good to Israel, but as for me, I'm just not so sure. I think it's good for us to stop and recognize, ask the question, is it possible to have faith and doubt at the same time? It is. It is very possible. Again, as we've heard in Mark, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One author says it this way, unbelief does not doubt. Faith does. Right? If you, have unbe- if you don't believe, there's no struggle there. You don't believe. It's when you have faith. That's, that's, the, that's the struggle. That's where doubt often resides. And so he says, I'm envious. I know that God is good, but my whole world seems to be upside down. What I always believed to be true doesn't look true. Has that been anyone's experience in this room? Where there are things that you always knew to be true, you heard it every Sunday, And now you're at a point where you're like, it just doesn't look true. Everything I've heard, everything I've known, it's not lining up with my experience. Can you see why this psalm really relates to us? Isn't it great that God included this in the Bible? (laughs) It's not taken by surprise. So starting in verse 4 and going through all of verse 12, he lays out his case for his doubts. He does not hold back. He does not even say anything like, well, I probably shouldn't think like this, but I do. And I I shouldn't feel envious, but I I am. He lays it all out. And he describes how well, how good the wicked have it. So in verses 4 and 5, we see 
their comfort. They are just living life. They're living it up. They have no pangs until death, so they have a life of ease. They have a life of plenty. Their bodies are fat and sleek. All right? Fat is a good thing in this, in this verse. All right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it means there's, it, in the context, it's saying they have, they're not malnourished. They are, they are well off. They're good. They are not in trouble as others are. So they have a life of security. And it almost seems like they're the exception to the rule, right? Everyone else is in trouble. Everyone else is stricken like the rest of mankind. And in fact, we're going to find out later on, he includes himself in that. He says, I'm being afflicted. But these wicked people aren't. What is going on? And so, everything in verses 6 through 9, what's being described here? If this is comfort, what would you... What word would you assign to verses 6 through 9? They're boasting, okay? So it's almost like his arrogance, right? And I think these two are connected. How do I know that these two are connected? Right there. Therefore, pride is their necklace. So they're at ease. They, are, they have complete comfort. They have no problems. They're living a sinful lifestyle. They're doing their own thing. They're living their own life. They can do what they want, and they're not experiencing any repercussions for it. And when that's the case, what happens? You get emboldened. So this comfort results in more arrogance. Therefore, pride's their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So they respond with greater boldness and arrogance. They add to their wickedness with more violence, verse 6. More foolishness, verse 7. Mockery and oppression, in verse 8. Verse 9, blasphemy. They set their mouths against the heavens, and, this, and then this very interesting, uh, strange-sounding phrase, their tongue struts through the earth. Okay, It's a weird mental image. Think of a tongue just kind of strutting along, right? Uh, but it's actually a very vivid picture, right? The, the type of speech that they have. They're arrogant. They are totally fine. So they're at complete ease, no repercussions, so they're bold in their sin. Do we still see this today? We do. Verse 10, it seems to be saying, on top of the arrogance and on top of the comfort, people are flocking to them. People love them. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and them here are the wicked. This verse is actually a really difficult one to interpret. Hebrew is tricky sometimes. And in fact, the second line particularly is, is pretty difficult. If you're looking at a different English version, you probably see something that has the word waters in it. Um, the Hebrew literally says, the waters of a full cup are drained by them. What in the world? Why does it say, find no fault in them? Um, this is a situation, this is the ESV, this is a situation where the ESV does add some interpretation to their translation. Every ver English version does this at one time or another, from the King James to the NASB to the NIV to the ESV. Most commentators interpret this phrase to say that these crowds are flocking to them 
just to drink up all their words. That's what, that's, what, that's what this is communicating here. These people turn back to them, and the waters of a full cup, so it's almost like a picture of the wicked, are, have this cup full of words, and it's just being poured out, and these people are just drinking it up. And that's why you see this idea of they find no fault in them. They're just, it's all good. I'm drinking it up. The CSB says they drink in their overflowing words. So these people are arrogant, they're at ease, and they're popular. Everybody loves them. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So now they're questioning God's existence or his power. Either God doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't have the power or the knowledge to stop me, because he hasn't stopped me. Is there knowledge in the Most High? There is. They're asking this, saying, no, there isn't. And so verse 12 is the conclusion. All of this, Asaph says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, and they increase in riches. Now here's the... Here's the Think of this in terms of an Old Testament Jew, in terms of the law, where God assigned blessing, often physical blessing, to obedience. Right? If you obey my law, I'll bless you with land, and I'll bless you with life, and all these things. So imagine, it's a tension for us when we see the wicked prospering, but imagine how much more of a tension it would be for an Old Testament Jew to see the wicked seemingly receiving the blessings from God that they were promised for obeying his word. And he says, these are the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase in riches. What is going on? And so verse 13, what does he say? What's his conclusion? It's all useless. What's useless? Being good. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean. And wash my hands in innocence. Why am I doing what, am I, what I am doing? The Christian life is really hard. Why am I going through all this effort if it's not even paying off? In fact, in the Hebrew, this word all, do you know what word it is? Truly. Same word that he begins right up here in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. There's a Sunday school answer. He starts playing out his doubts. He starts meditating on how horrible things are. And he comes to a new conclusion. Truly, it's all in vain. God is good to those who are pure in heart, it says in verse 1. Now he's saying, truly, there's no point to being pure in heart. Living for God isn't helping me. But wickedness sure seems to be helping them. And why does he say, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean? He gets no reward. Look in the next verse. We see four. Why is it all in vain? He's just being afflicted. His life is horrible. All day long, I've been stricken. 
I have been rebuked how often? Every morning. It doesn't stop. What's the tension for you? What's the tension for you? What doubts are you battling internally that arise from the tension between your head knowledge and your life experience? What is that for you? Where your Sunday school textbook answer does not seem to be lining up with what you're living through. This is exactly what Asaph is struggling with. And he's saying, I, my, you can see why he's saying my steps have nearly slipped. I, I have no stable ground. And on top of that, verses 15 and 16, he feels trapped. If I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's that saying? Yeah, Mike. Well, he's afraid that he will trip someone up. Right, and how would he be a stumbling block? Because if he spoke out against God, then they would think, oh my gosh, maybe he's right. Yeah. So when he says, I will speak thus, what's the thus? It's all this, right? (laughs) Right, so he's saying, if I actually voiced my doubts out loud, I'd betray the generation of your children. I would, I would hurt the faith of other people. What are the doubts that you're afraid to speak out loud because you feel like they might hurt the faith of someone else? That you might shatter somebody else's confidence in God if you voice those doubts. He feels trapped. But, verse 16, so he's keeping it inside his own head. How well is that going for him? It's a wearisome task. So he's like, fine, I can't say it out loud, so I'm just going to try to figure it out. I've got to work through this. I've got I to do the hard work and, and think it through. And it just wearies him out. He's so tired. He's so worn down. I can't keep it in my own head, but I can't say it out loud. What is that for you? Finally, we get to the hinge point. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. What's the sanctuary of God? It's the word, but in this context, what would it be? The temple. Now, we're not told exactly what happens in the temple to change his perspective, whether he's reading from the law or hearing the worship, but the basic idea is what's happening. He's focusing on the Lord. He goes into the presence of the Lord. And what does God do? God changes Asaph's perspective. We see he went to the sanctuary of God, and what was the result? He discerned their end. In other words, David, Asaph's doubts stemmed from a limited scope. What doubts are you struggling with that actually stem from just the, the narrow perspective of your own experience? And how can God 
expand that perspective for you to see the whole picture. So he's interpreting reality through the lens of his finite experience rather than the lens of God's sovereign plan. And so God helps him zoom out and see the full picture. In other words, when doubt is given the floor, it really can crowd out the truth. It can crowd out that full perspective that you need. Advice I was once given was learn to doubt your doubts. Learn to doubt your doubts. Oftentimes when we have a doubt, it just becomes a crisis. And we think, oh no. But have we ever doubted our doubts the same way we often doubt the truth? Don't give them the floor. Don't allow them to reign uncontested. Bring them into the sanctuary of God. Verse 18, we see a very familiar word. Truly. There it is again. Same one as in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel. Same, same word when he was doubting. He said, truly I've cleansed my heart in vain. Now after his perspective change, he says, truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in a moment? Swept away utterly by terrors. The renewed perspective brings Asaph back to the truth. Slippery places, talking about the instability of the wicked, that reminds me of verse 2, where he says, my feet had almost slipped. But when he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped, now he's saying, truly, it's the feet of the wicked that are slipping. He felt like he was on unstable ground, but focusing on God made him realize it was the wicked who were on unstable ground. He says that you despise them, in verse 20, like phantoms, as phantoms. This reminds me of Psalm 62, verse 9. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, where it says, those who are low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion, and in the balance they go up, they are altogether lighter than breath. It says, Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you awake, when you take action, they're like a breath, they're like a phantom, they're like a ghost. And so here is what God does for Asaph. If we were to encapsulate what the change in perspective was for him, it's this. Number one, he gives him an eternal perspective. And two, he redefines... our idea of good. And we'll see this later on. So finally, Asaph has this renewed perspective. God pulls back the curtain and says, yes, I know that they're successful. I know that they're thriving. I know that they're wealthy. I know that they're unopposed and uncontested. But let me show you the full picture of reality. Verse 21 Look at, look at how Asaph describes how he felt about himself after this renewed perspective. How would you 
describe how Asaph's feeling about himself in verses 21 and 22. <laughs> Bad, ashamed, really sad, yeah? He's embittered, pricked in the heart, brutish and ignorant. I mean, again, Asaph is so blunt. He's saying, I was stupid. I was dumb. I was like a beast. I'm like a dumb animal. That's what he's saying. He's just, Asaph is just, he's, he's being really hard on himself right here. He's saying, my soul was embittered when I realized, my goodness, I've been envying the wicked. I've been envying the wicked. That's dumb. That, that, what was I thinking? And he says to God, I'm like a, I'm like a dumb animal before you. Maybe you can look back on your life at seasons of doubt and think this way. What was I thinking? Oh, man, really? I doubted that about God? I thought that about God? I was envious about that? It's amazing what a, what a full perspective on life, a heavenly perspective, can, can do for your doubts. And it doesn't discredit the, the, the real feeling of envy and doubt in the moment. This is very real. This isn't to say that you shouldn't feel embarrassed about doubting. But he's being honest about his newfound clarity about life and how it changed his perspective on the doubts themselves. Any questions, thoughts? Justin. So everybody talked about bitterness or envious. Nobody's saying about anger. You don't think there's anger or being mad in this situation? Like toward himself? Oh, I'm sure there was. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he was, he was somber, he was sad. We don't have to think about something that made him be very mad. Yeah, I would be very surprised if, as Asaph was going through this, he wasn't experiencing a real anger. And when he's saying, why, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's, and I think it's, yeah, anger, just giving in, when you see animals, it's kind of almost like you're giving in to your baser instincts, right? And, and man, we've, we've been there when we're just, we're, we're angry at life, we're angry at ourselves, we're angry at how we're responding to things, and you, don't you hate it when you have to go to God and be like, I'm stupid and I'm dumb and I'm like an animal. <laughs> Again, this isn't to say that you should, you, should, you should beat yourself up and criticize yourself when you're struggling with doubts. That's not what it's saying. Notice he's bringing this to God and he's just being honest about how he's feeling. The key thing in verse 17 to me was toward him. Mm-hmm. Because it shows that earlier in the psalm, he was using short-term temporal thinking mm-hmm. instead of looking at things from a long view or God's viewpoint. Yes. And just by knowing how things are going to end, you go, yeah. okay, they'll get theirs. Yep. <laughs> it's, well, yeah. He's looking at their life, how things are going, and... Uh, and what did he discern? 
the end of it. Right? That's, that's where the clarity comes. You're absolutely right. So he brings this before God, and he feels so horrible about it. Look at verse 23. Ah, I love this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Do you know what that includes? This. The whole time, God, I was, I was thinking dumb thoughts. I was, I was thinking ignorantly. I was acting like a beast. That whole time, you were continually with me. My doubts did not scare you off. My doubts did not distance you from me. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. God's loving presence never changed. God's never distanced himself from him during his season of doubt. In fact, this word nevertheless, do you know what the Hebrew word is for that? It's the same word translated but as for me, which we saw way up here. When he said, as for me, my feet are stumbling and slipping. But in all of that, in my ignorant and brutish doubts, but as for me, I'm always with you. He's reminded of God's presence. Truly, God is good to Israel, but as for me, I'm slipping. Now it says, truly, the wicked are slipping, but as for me, God is good. And the next three phrases clarify God's presence. What is God doing? Continually, through the season of doubt, what is God doing? He's holding your hand. Holding your hand. Even through the season of dark doubt? Yeah. He is holding your hand through that. He's the one keeping you from falling, in fact. What does the song say? When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When he was afraid of my feet nearly slipping, what's the only thing that kept his feet from actually slipping? It was God's hand holding him. What else is God doing? He's guiding me with your counsel. What's his counsel? The word. We saw in Psalm 23, he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's leading you through life through his, with his word, even through this struggle. And finally, what does God do? He's going to receive me to glory. Afterward. And here's the big, Rick pointed out, back up in verse 17, what did he discern? The wicked's end. What happens afterward? What happens afterward? Well, for him, he will be received to glory. He highlights three things that the wicked with all of their comfort and success, do not possess. Sure, they have the wealth. They have the success. They have the popularity. Do you know what they don't have? 
They don't have God's divine presence through struggle. They don't have God's divine guidance through struggle. They don't have God's eternal blessing after the struggle. Yes? Is there any reason the right hand? The right hand? Good question. Um, usually, if there's going to emphasize one over the other, it's always the right instead of the left. It's right hand, you are at my right side, um, sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's, it's often described as a place of, of favor. Um, and, and so it's, it's a common phrase. You never really see, in fact, I think in Ecclesiastes it says that the wise person um, veers toward the right and the wicked toward the left. That's not a political statement, okay? <laughs> that, is, that is saying that there is, that's between the right hand and the left hand, right is the place of favor, all right? So, he highlights three things that the wicked, with all their comfort and success, do not possess. They don't have those things. What have you been focusing on? What the wicked have. What the wicked are, are, are achieving. He wasn't focusing on what the wicked don't have. And, and God, and, and he has something that the wicked will never possess. He has God. Which is why he says in verse 25... Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. What else do I need but God? I will take his presence, his guidance, and his promise of eternal life over the prosperity and success of the wicked any day. Here's what he was doing. He was looking at the wrong thing. He had the wrong definition of good. He said, God is good to Israel, but I'm doubting. Why? Because all the good seems to be going toward the wicked. But what, how is he defining good? He was defining good as wealth, success, power, ease, comfort. And then when he realized, and he zoomed back, and he entered the sanctuary of God, and he understood their end, he realized, I've been defining good the wrong way this whole time. I was focusing on what the wicked had, but I didn't realize what they lacked. They don't have God. And now, how is good defined for Asaph? God himself. Before, good was defined as what God gives me. Now, good is defined as God. I desire you, your presence, your guidance, eternal life with you. Verse 26. I love this because he says, My flesh and my heart may fail. He's repeating his experience from verse 14. What does he say in verse 14? All day long I'm stricken and I'm rebuked every morning. And now he's looking at that exact same situation. And he says, Yep. But God is the strength of my heart, and God is my portion forever. His renewed perspective helped him see those same exact trials in a different way. God is the strength of my heart. This Hebrew word for strength is, is literally rock. The wicked's portion, where's the wicked's portion found? 
Where do they get their portion? Portion is your lot in life, right? Where do they get it? Well, yes, God gives all things, but we're going to put it on a timeline. Right here, right now, right? This life. And then it ends there. The righteous? It's eternity. You are my portion forever. Forever. What does the age-old song say? Right, You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. <laughs> Look at this. But for me, it is good to be near to God. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In these last two verses, he repeats those two lessons he learned from his changed perspective. Here's that eternal perspective. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You'll put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. And here, here's a second lesson. That redefinition of good. Now what is good for Asaph? To be near God. What was his definition of good before? Prosperity, comfort, free from affliction. It's not bad to want those things, especially when you're afflicted all day long. But when he sees that renewed perspective, he sees there is goodness, there's the goodness of God in that affliction. And I have made, because of that, because it's good for me to be near to God, what am I doing? I'm getting as close to God as I possibly can. I have made the Lord God my refuge, my shelter, so that I may tell of all your works. And here's the cool thing. You know what he's doing right here? The truth that he stated at the beginning of the psalm was still true. Truly, God is good to those who are, who are pure in heart. He's good to Israel. It wasn't that God's word was in error. It was how he was understanding and interpreting God's word in relation to his experience. Isn't it incredible how just your definition of this word right here can thrust you into either doubt or complete confidence. What he said at the beginning was true. God is still good. And, and how gracious of God, through his doubts and through his fears, to hold his hand the whole time, to guide him through that and allow him and lead him to that renewed perspective. Yeah. Put together. Being happy for yourself that you have 
That, that, that puts a whole other light on this. A lot of times, you'll notice that for us, in our, in our day, in our culture, the question we struggle with, how can a good God send this person to hell? Often the question that they struggled more in Bible times is, why isn't God sending this person to hell? <laughs> that that there, was, there was rampant wickedness in unchecked sin, and, and, and people are saying, God, why aren't you more just? And now the question is just flip-flopped, God, why aren't you more loving? But the answer is the same in both. How are you viewing things? Are you viewing things from my limited perspective, or are you viewing things from God's perspective? And, and from my limited perspective, and, and like a, I look at an unsafe person, a friend of mine that's going, that, that doesn't believe in God, to think that God would punish that it's really hard. That's, that can be one of those doubts, right, that, that conflict against what you always knew to be true. And you're thinking, how can this really be true? How can God do such a thing? But the answer, although the question is different, the answer is in the same. The eternal perspective and the redefinition not only of good, but of evil as well. Justin. And then by, by five o'clock in the morning, you're already at the verse well, seven or eight. Yeah. And by nine o'clock, you're really ticked off. And you're seeing the sight come back and truly that truth to yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and starting off somewhere with envy mm-hmm. there is hard. But no one gives you the pattern of how often you're going to go through that. That's true. I think that's where the Christian people, when I, when I read verse 17, and Talk about coming to the sanctuary of God. That's what we're here for. That you might have that same perspective of me. This is pretty awful. Yeah. It's pretty awful right now. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And to have other people that it's awful as well. We're committed to setting our minds towards that end. And it's a commitment. It's not a happy feeling. It's not a happy, oh, this is just great. I feel wonderful about it. It's a true setting your perspective in your mind. I'm going to have verse 1, and I'm going to have verse 20, maybe. And in between, there's going to be some more going on, but I'm going to have that by the time I rectify my dying. Yes. yes. And we don't allow ourselves, Chris Anderson wrote a book on the Psalms, one of those very first monologues he put on there, he put in there about praying bad. We don't allow Christians to pray bad. We don't, we don't allow ourselves to be and to feel that emotion in a way that is going to rectify itself by truths on any eager bookend. So I think this is perfect. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so good. You're... The fact that God includes this cycle in Scripture. Why did he include that? Because, man, my people are going to be going through this multiple times a day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's praying this to God, as you mentioned, Justin, right? We don't allow ourselves to pray mad prayers, right? 
he's saying to God, God, I'm really envious of what the wicked are experiencing right now. And let me ex- tell you why. <laughs> let me count the ways. Right? And, and that key thing, right? Th- this is the hinge point of the whole thing. Do you bring yourself back to God's presence time and time again? Because that's where the renewed perspective is found. And we don't pray like that. We don't. We don't pray like that with other Christians. No. So when somebody is honest and prays like that, one of you think they're falling off the rockers. Right. <laughs> you know, and I, I've said this several times in, in, in a small group setting, that if you heard the way I prayed to God when I was in the woods, you'd be scared of me. <laughs> but the ending point has to get back there. And if we don't ever allow ourselves that opportunity to pray, to really pray, then we cheat each other out of the, the blessing of the struggles of your life and the struggles of mine and what God's done. When we put God's glasses on, it's yeah. And how does this verse end? Right. right? This is what he's doing in this song. That's part of it. Telling his works, part of telling God's works is showing people how he led you through those angry moments, those dark moments of doubt, and held your hand and brought you back to his sanctuary. And can you imagine having one of your angry prayers inscripturated for all of eternity, right? <laughs> That's what Asaph got. Yeah. Space between verse 16 and 17 is so important because you can go either direction at that point. When a lot of people, when they are consumed with doubts, whether it's the prosperity of the wicked or, as Hannah mentioned, the, the judgment of, of those who don't know the Lord and struggling with that reality, right? It's too wearisome to understand it. Do you know what some people do at that point? Throw it away. I'm not, I'm not dealing with that anymore. I'm throwing it away. Because I can't figure it out. You can do that. Or you can bring your, your doubts, your struggles, your, 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 your anger into the sanctuary of God and lay it before him and see if he changes your perspective. Susan. Um, I remember the thing that Elizabeth Elliot said once, when you're having trouble um, and you're having a lot of burdens, to take it to the Lord first mm-hmm. before you take it to other people because God is strong and He can handle yes. things that not 
not everyone can. Right. To take it to the Lord first, which is what he did here. I mean, mm-hmm. he talked about it. He put it backwards in the Bible. But yes. He talked about it. He did. And, 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 and I think verse 15, where he says, if I would have said all this out loud in my state of doubt, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I think that's a truth. He's saying, I was so low that I would have hurt the faith of other people if I would have just blurted this out to them. Instead of casting it on the Lord in prayer, I'm casting it on them. And, and, and I think he's right in saying, you know what, I, I wasn't prepared to do that quite yet. I, it probably wouldn't have been good for me to do, but I can bring it to God. And then after he brings it to God and, he, and God guides him through it, what is he able to do? He's able to, he's able to declare what God did in his heart. And so, yes, you, you, want, you don't want to upset the faith of others. That's not to say, though, that when you are struggling, you shouldn't go and share your struggle with someone else or your doubts with someone else. God uses the testimony and the love and the, and the encouragement of other Christians to help you through those times. So it doesn't mean keep it to yourself completely. Yes, Rebecca? Off to the side there, you wrote two things. Yes. I got the first one. What was the second one? Uh, let me see here. These two things? Yes. Uh, second one was redefining our idea of good. Yeah. Rick. One other thing about this song that I really love, it shows us how God is truly our Father. Mm-hmm. You know, what father with a child who's throwing a tantrum would pick up the child and throw him out of the house? <laughs> yeah. He'd sit down with the child and he'd wait for it to die down and then. Help him gain perspective. <clears throat> and that's what Asa needed here. He needed his perspective. He got to hold his hand the whole time, right? Exactly right. Now, I have a four-year-old son who sometimes gets out-of-control angry, right? You know, to the point where you know they're not necessarily being rebellious at you. They're just so out of control and so mad that they can't even control themselves. And they're just like, ah, right? And sometimes you just kind of have to hold them. And just have to sit there and hold them. And then once they get over themselves, you talk some sense into them, right? That's what God's doing. He's like, I got you. All right? Let it out. (laughs) And then he gives that perspective graciously, like a father does. That's exactly right. Any other thoughts? You. I think it's teaching us to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Yeah, vulnerable with God, but also vulnerable to justice. It doesn't mean we have to run out to everybody and tell everybody our problems. But if we can get together in fellowship with one person or another person, we can be vulnerable with each other. Yes. It helps build each other up. Right. And it can bring that community that little bit stronger. Yeah. That's exactly right. Like I said at the beginning, how, how many of you have had a, a doubt where you just don't feel like you can voice that to somebody because how it'll be received, right? How much better would it be if you had brothers and sisters in Christ, when you have a legitimate doubt like this and you're able to go to someone and, 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 and lay it out there and be like, listen, let me tell you what I'm struggling through. There's, here's this doubt, this tension that I'm experiencing between, between what I've always believed and, uh, and what I'm experiencing right now. Talking, letting that out, sharing that. You know what that person across the table will probably say? Hey, man, me too. I've gone through that. I, I come from a different background. Here, you come from that charismatic background. So there's a lot of things I'm still learning. There's a lot of things that sometimes I'm doubting. I'm not sure. I was taught completely different. Mm-hmm. And I want to come up to someone and be like, hey, but I want somebody to be looking at you. Really? Right. So I'll be missing you. I'm like, you know, I've never been taught that. That's not how I was raised. 
So we have people that are coming from different backgrounds that are struggling with these things in their lives that, you know, somebody, you know, it doesn't matter how long they've been in church. Yes. An elder can just be somebody who has an understanding. Mm-hmm. And you can come to them and they can say, hey, I'm struggling with self-preservation saints. Mm-hmm. I was talk with this. I was talking to lose your salvation just by one lie at the wrong time mm-hmm. kind of thing. But allowing yourself to and be open with each other. Just yeah. say, hey, you know, come to me. Right. You have a problem, come to me. I don't know. Let me see. How can we work through this together? How can we pray about this? Yes. It takes humility, both on the person part of the person who's sharing that now, because you're you're acknowledging I haven't figured this out yet. I'm still learning. And it takes humility on the person of the person on the part of the person hearing it to be like to not respond with pride, like oh, what in the world? What's your problem? Why are you still figuring through that? And humility, realizing, you know, I've got my own problems that I'm working through. And that's exactly why we have the body of Christ. That's what should be happening in the church. That if, if, if you have a doubt or a struggle, something you're figuring out, it should be so natural for us to be like, I'm going to go talk to so-and-so. I'm going to share with that with so-and-so. Why is that not, why is that not natural to us? I think it's just because we're not used to it. It's just not what you do. Right? You have all the right answers. You say all the right lines. You have all the right Sunday school facts in your head. And you just keep that. Don't ruffle any feathers. And we'll all smile and be happy. Okay? It's not what the church should be. Psalm 73 is pretty good. I like it. And I hope it was helpful and encouraging to you. Um, bring these to the Lord. Bring it to other people. And see if he doesn't change your perspective as he holds your hand and is continually with you even through seasons of doubt. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so...